Welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. We're going to explore ways to sharpen our diagnostic skills, find learning resources, and hear from experts in the automotive field. Hey, what's going on, automotive world? Welcome to another episode of the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. My name is Sean Tipping, and I will be your host today. Joining me on the show today, I've got three guests, Lucas Underwood, he's been on the podcast before, Tommy Oliva, he's been on a few times as well, and Dutch is joining us once again as well. Uh, These three gentlemen are going to be joining me today to talk about mobile technicians, and specifically mobile diagnostic technicians. Of course, we roll programming into that as well, but the topic of discussion today is going to be the effect uh, that mobile technicians have on the automotive industry, positive and negative. Are mobile technicians providing a valuable resource for shops that allows them to increase their productivity and level of service, or are we maybe propping up some shops that otherwise wouldn't be in business or wouldn't be successful? Also, is this a viable career path for a younger technician or someone getting into this field? Uh, You know, can you strive to be a mobile diagnostic technician? Is that something realistic? So we're going to cover those topics and actually quite a bit more. Uh, This one went several different directions, but it's all really, really good stuff. Uh, Three very smart individuals here with me today. I'm happy to have them all on the show. So let's get into the discussion. Well, hey, I've been listening to you guys' podcasts and really enjoying, uh, especially the awesome. Technician series uh, with uh, Brandon and Cody and Mario, and that's been really good to listen to. I'm, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. We've actually got more of those coming. So there, we, we had to do a little bit of a gap in there. We had some that we need to get in. Um, there are some really, um, I don't know the, the nicest way to say it, there are some that are going to push the limits. Right. And, and there, there are some that, that guys are really getting out there and pouring their hearts out. Um, and I don't know if you saw the post that I made today and it was about a comment that was in Reddit and it was the guy talking about what everybody was saying about going into the industry. And it's so crazy because I posted that in ASOG and then I posted that in the mentor group and the two different streams of answers that we got Dutch. I don't know if you saw it. I, I mean, it's unbelievable to see what the owners are saying compared to what the techs are saying. It, it's just crazy to see it like that. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I like a contentious discussion because it's lively as yeah. opposed to the snooze fest. Um, and you get different points of view out there. Yeah. You know, there's going to be stuff that we're going to say as owners that techs have never heard. And there's going to be stuff as, as techs that they would confide, confide to a fellow tech that they would never say to an owner. And now you give them an avenue to, uh, to let it go. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to those. I yep. always am. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's the only way you actually solve any issues or make any progress on anything is hashing out, uh, you know, the, the real yeah. issues with everybody's point of view. So definitely cool stuff. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. 
And uh, yeah, maybe we can do a little bit of that tonight. Um, of course. It can be as contentious as Dutch wants it to be. You um, rat bastard. <laughs> listen, listen, the fact that I'm here and Dutch is here guarantees it's going to be contentious no matter what. Um, I just need to throw in a couple advances. That's okay. we got this. Yeah. We got this. Sean and I already had an agreement yeah. before. I yeah. got a bottle of bourbon. This is a drinking game. Every time you say advance industry or repeat yourself from one of the 6,200 other podcasts that you've had where you've mentioned the same things over again, we take a shot. So pretty much we're going to be soused in the next 12 minutes. Hey, listen, listen, uh, Linda. Linda, I have, <laughs> hey, and the beaver, don't forget about the beaver. Uh, I I have been drinking on on something that I'll be bringing to ASTE just for you, old man. Thank I, you I'm, very I'm much. I'm bringing it just just for you. So Geritol in a see through bottle. Thank you. I appreciate. Yeah, that. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe. Hi. Sorry, <laughs> you guys figured me out. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah. So the reason I got everybody here tonight and uh, at Dutch. Lucas and Tommy is uh, I wanted to talk with you guys about uh, mobile technicians uh, in the automotive field. And I wanted perspectives from both sides on, you know, what the effect of mobile diagnosticians and programmers, and maybe we'll end up splitting those into two separate categories, but um, what is the effect on the industry and uh, I know myself and Tommy do the mobile thing and then you guys own successful shops. And that was a big part of it. I want to talk to somebody who, you know, runs a successful shop that maybe doesn't need one. I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, and what your opinions are on mobile techs in this industry. Well, you know, I, I think that they get such a bad name and you can ask Dutch every time a mobile diagnostician ends up in ASOG. Shop owners are like, what in the world have you done? And and the reality is, is I think we first need to understand there is a difference between the mobile repair technician that you see advertising in Facebook groups and a mobile diagnostician, right? Or a mobile programmer, because there's a difference. And so I think that's something a lot of shop owners don't understand. Um, and, you know, me personally, I we have skilled technicians who can find just about anything you put in front of them. I'm somewhat skilled and can usually figure things out. But, you know, I was talking to Dutch just the other day. Brandon Dills is a real good friend of mine. We were backed up against the wall, right? We had more work. I had 156 hours per technician that was supposed to be done by last Friday. And I'm like, there's no way it's happening. We need help. So I had Brandon come in and grab some things that Brandon could take care of in the parking lot, do some quick diags and keep us moving. I mean, I don't think you can just look at this and say, uh, I don't know if uh, I agree with that. I don't need a diag tech to come in and help me with this. It's not just about can you solve the problem or not. They have, you know, a ton of benefit in other areas as well. Almost like a form of outsourcing, right? Yeah. That's that's kind of what I viewed it as, but it really does depend on the shop. Yeah. Because there's some opinions out there that mobile technicians, uh, specifically, again, with diagnostics, uh, maybe propping up or providing a crutch 
for some shops that can't do that work. So that'd be the difference between yours and another shop that can't find that open wire or the fuse or, you know, some, something that they should be able to, um, and that we're keeping them in business in a way. I don't know the, the, uh, I can see both sides of that because, um, if a shop is going to fail, that might be the straw that breaks the camel's back, but it's more than likely they're going to fail because they don't know how to run a business. Yep. So it's not just that, okay. Um, they brought a, a mobile diagnostician in, therefore they don't deserve to be in business. Um, or they deserve to fail, what's likely to happen is if they don't have any business acumen, the increases, the likelihood is increased that they're going to fail anyway. So, you know, you're prolonging the inevitable in that regard. You're helping them. Um, And look, this is America. If they're willing to pay, who am I to tell them no? Not my place. You know, I mean, nobody here says the urgent care facility shouldn't exist because there's a hospital in their town. Now you go to an urgent care, you're not getting the same level of care, the same diagnostic testing. You're not having the same procedures. You know, you're not having open heart surgery at an urgent care up the street. Nobody says, well, that urgent care shouldn't be open because they might not be able to do the same thing that the hospital does. It's another avenue. So I have a few different perspectives. One as a failed shop owner and one as a mobile mobile technician, mobile diagnostician, mobile programmer or whatnot. Um, I've encountered various moral dilemmas doing mobile programming in my area. Um, uh, just, just today, for example, right? I, I had a gentleman... Uh, from a shop, he brought me a Silverado, wanted a, a, a TCM installed, okay, he installed it, program it, ship it, comes back an hour later with a PCM, hey, can you install it, can you program it, okay, I, I got to the point where I stopped asking questions, I just said, all right, so you want it, I get it done, I do it, and he comes back 20 minutes later. Hey, you think you can diagnose this for me? So then I found like, hey, what the hell is going on? Oh, it has this this uh, you know, input speed sensor code. Um, it's uh, it's a it's it's. I just can't figure it out. I did this, I did that. Two transmissions, one valve body, this and that, that and this. I ran overlays. I just can't figure it out. Um, hey, all right, diagnose it. I. 10 minutes later, terminal pin tension issue at the connector, at the valve body. Fill him, he's, he's done. I'm happy. Two programming events in Diag. I'm in the 450 bucks. But my moral dilemma is this shop isn't eating this. This shop is passing this on to the customer. Two transmissions. Uh, final body re- uh, replacement, two modules it didn't need, programming events it didn't need, and ultimately my diag fee. That's where I sometimes feel morally like, hey man, I'm helping this guy screw other other customers. Yeah, it's not and- my fault. 
it's not my fault. I mean, I don't feel bad that way. I feel in a sense that I am enabling this because I am there to, to provide these services. Right. And, and, you know, I think there's so much of that. And, and Dutch and I have had lots of these ethical and moral discussions over the years. And, and Dutch is, is one of my closest mentors. And I'll, I'll get into a situation, I'll call him and I'll ask him, hey, what do I do about this? And, and I, Dutch will tell you, there, there was a situation years ago with a Subaru that, I, that the guy moved to Charlotte. Dutch was working on it. And um, my tech had, I think we had put a clutch in it or something like that. And the guy said, hey, ever since y'all did that, the shifter was loose. And it was some shifter bushings, whatever. Not a big deal. I said, Dutch, what do you, what do you think I should do? And he said, you should pay for it. Cool. All right. I'm paying for it. It's good. And, and the reason I bring that up is because I've, I've grown accustomed to the fact that it's first my responsibility to do the ethical and right thing for the client. Right. That's what I, that's my job because I'm the professional. They're looking to me to say, Hey, you're taking care of me. Um, and one of the ways, and we were just talking about that this morning in our shop. So I'll, I'll set the, the story up for you a little bit. Um, we had a car that came in. I'm building a new shop. So I'm, I'm working on building the new shop. I'm not in the shop right now as much as I was. And the husband comes to the service advisor and says, hey, I'm getting ready to get my wife a new car. I don't want you to tell her everything that's wrong with this one. I just want you to look at it and tell her something. And so they looked at it and they gave her a little bit of information and did our standard reporting, but they could not find the noise in the allotted time. So they needed to either do more testing, but they didn't do the standard write-up we always do. So she calls and she says, hey, I don't know what to do. I really want this noise found. I really like this car. I was talking to the service advisor this morning. I said, it, 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 the client does not dictate our process. We put processes in place to protect us and the client to make sure they get the quality of service that we demand from our staff, from ourselves each and every time. Right. And so Tommy, in that situation, the way I perceive what you're going through is it's very, very important that we put processes, policies, and procedures in place that allow us to protect the end user. And, and if we're working for somebody who's in that situation, me personally, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or indifferent, me personally, I'm going to back away and say, hey, I don't really want my name attached to this. I'm really sorry. I, I'm not trying to offend you, but I just don't think this is something I want to be involved in. I tell clients all the time, no, I'm not interested. Thank you, though. Right now, a lot of people get upset at that. And a lot of shops will say, what in the world? You're telling money? No, absolutely. Because I've said it before, um, those thermostat bolts on that car that you know, the guy comes in with an overheating, you know, Dodge pickup at the end of the day and says, hey, could you just throw a thermostat in it real quick on a Friday afternoon? And they break off in the manifold and you're there all weekend trying to get the dude back on the road because you told him and be done Friday afternoon. Stop putting yourself in that situation. See, for me, Tommy, the, the, the fact that you're concerned about it speaks volumes about your moral compass. And I commend you for thinking about it. But I'm going to tell you that you are not responsible for the actions of others. Now, you may have suspected that what this guy is going to do is charge the customer. You may legitimate be, legitimately be right. That's what he's going to do. Is that your issue? It's not my issue. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like I, 
I, I did my job to my expectations. Like I, I am okay with what happened. I'm not okay in the greater good. So in my shop, um, a few years ago, uh, because of a lot of the training events and I started seeing how people were, and this is even kind of before ASOG was really popular. I kind of just, I knew I had to go in a different direction. I don't like having problems with customers. I started having parts quality products. I had too many, um, I had too much work, not enough money. So I decided to go in the, you know, better warranty, uh, selling a service, selling, uh, selling quality, trying to, you know, I went about it the wrong way. I see that now as, as, I'm getting to where I'm I'm at in my career, but my biggest dilemma was I always did things for the greater, the greater good, the greater good of the industry. I love this industry. The industry gave me everything. Um, but at one point, am I supposed to say, well, 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 what, well, what about me? Like I, I'm in a really bad neighborhood. I didn't the best that I could. Um, I just, I'm at the point right now that I'm actually just walking away. Like I, I'm focusing on something else and maybe in a few years I can probably find a better location and something like I'm, I made my peace with the fact that I'm not in a good neighborhood and I need to move out. But what I'm trying to get at is it didn't, it didn't work for me. And I don't know whether I'm okay with it or I'm not okay with it because the guy next door to me, his, his shop is a lot bigger, a lot, a lot nicer per se, but it looks like a junkyard. He has cars up the wazoo because he can't get them out because he doesn't know how to diagnose them properly, but he's making money. So it's just like, well, I can sit here and say, what did I do wrong? What that, what, what I didn't do right. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the greater good of the, of the industry. And that's, that's where I have my problem. I don't know if I'm getting my, my point across. I feel kind of my, I'm all over the place. Um, it's been a little, it's been a difficult uh, couple months for me. But anyway, so when I, when I see that, when I see these, these customers go to these shops and unfortunately it is reality. Um, I didn't ask him first, obviously I, I'm not going to ask him if he's charging the customer or not, but it, it's, it's a pattern. Like I've seen this before from this guy and, and Lucas, you're, you're totally correct. Like, Maybe I should stop working with this gentleman. But then it's like at a point where it's, this is kind of my job. So I get stuck in between this, the situation where it's like, should I, should I, shouldn't I, what do I do? What's right? What's wrong? Um, and I and I guess that's where this conversation is a great one because I've had conversations with, you know, even like Brandon, uh, a lot of mobile guys, my guy Pedro, and I, and I say this all the time, like, man, like, why, why, why are we in essence moonlighters? Are we enabling these shitty shops that want to pay their guys cheaper, but then we have to come and bail them out? Look, I want you to ask yourself a question, and this is kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. Should a doctor work on a drug addict if he knows he's going to wind up doing drugs? Should a doctor save him? A drug addict presents in the emergency room on an overdose. Did the doctor say, you know, what's the moral good here? This guy's just going to go out and do it again. Or does he, as a professional, have an obligation to do his best to save that patient, irrespective of what that patient may do later? 
your obligation as a professional is to do your best for the client that hires you. What happens after that is between them and God. Now, at this point, if you know in your heart, and Lucas alluded to this, if you know and you have incontrovertible evidence that what they're doing is wrong, you can, as a businessman, say, you know, I don't want to help you in this. I got a, a bad feeling about it. I just, I'm going to step away and refer you to someone else, or if not give them a name, say, I wish you a lot of luck. That's what you need to do. Your moral compass is what's going to keep you awake at night. We can't make up as individuals for the sins of the industry. All we can do every day is put our best fo uh, foot forward in order to help others who need our help. Maybe that guy who possibly is going to charge for the two transmissions, the valve bodies uh, and the programming events. Maybe he'll wake up tomorrow and go, I can't live my life this way anymore. I can't do it. Maybe he's not going to charge that person. Your responsibility as a professional, as someone with expertise, is not dependent upon what he does. Amen. Yeah. I think I think there can be some education as well uh, between a mobile technician and a shop that's very running much that way. Now, if they're really out there just being criminals, uh, you know, I, I don't want to work with them. But there are a ton of shops that make a bad call. Here, come program this module. Oh, it didn't fix it. Okay, there's a broken wire. And yeah, they're charging the customer because they don't want to eat the cost of the programming the module, not because they're you know, trying to be out there stealing from people, but because they're just, they, they made the bad call and they don't want to eat it. Right. They're, they're not, it's not great business practice, but they're doing, but what I think is that we can educate them as our customers to say, Hey, if you're not sure on this, why don't you give me a call? Just pay me to diagnose it. I'll tell you whether or not it needs a module. And then we can go from there. So I have some shops that I can think of that that's exactly how they operated. Throw a module, throw a module, throw a module at it. That was the answer yeah. to almost everything. everything. Mm -hmm. And yeah. after four or five of them where I come in, hey, sorry, man, that didn't fix your problem. Do you want me to look at it? And talk to them and say, yes, I can do these things. I'll check it out for you. They saw that I could. And now they call me before <laughs> they throw the module at it and say, hey, can you come look at this? And so that's how I've approached it with some of my shops that operate that way. The, yeah, the big, and okay, th there's going to be a lot of shops who have no interest in having diagnosticians, right? I was talking with the shop. Um, Dutch was partially involved in the conversation. Um, I was talking with them the other day. They came in and started asking about where to find technicians and kind of posted a, a hiring ad. And I was talking to them and they said, look, the best we're going to do and, and, and they've got a, a manager in the shop and she said, the best we're going to do is $800 a week for the techs. It's going to be cash, no benefits, no nothing else. And I said, you understand what you're going to get for that? And she said, oh, I know. I have a complete understanding of what we're going to get. And I said, that comes with a, a responsibility that you're taking on jobs that are in the threshold or the wheelhouse of that, right? Now, we don't have mobile diag techs. So I know these people are stand-up people. It's just the business practice they operate under doesn't lead to a, a different thought process, if you will, 
they're not taking advantage of people. They're not ripping people off. So we've set up some type of agreement that, hey, if you get into something, there's no mobile techs up here. Give me a call. We'll get the car over to our shop. We'll take a look at it and we'll we'll help you through it. If you get into something you can't handle, I would much rather us reach out and help those shops. And it gives us a door, a, a, a opportunity to speak to them, to help them and get them the information they need so we can improve things. Because, you know, that's what ASOG was really about is, is getting in and providing assistance to those that need help, especially when things are not going the way they expected them to go. Because I was there once. You've heard me say that before. I was once a hack shop. I didn't know. And I didn't even know what I was doing was wrong. And I didn't understand what I was doing wrong. But it took somebody taking me and leading me in the right direction. And so I think that's why these opportunities are so important is because we have to fix the industry from the inside out. We've got to start somewhere, and that's kind of how I envision it, is that we begin to help, whether it's a mobile tech going to a, a shop, whether it's another shop helping another shop owner. That, that's where it starts at. Look, Sean, the, the, the biggest problem in, in our industry, as I see it, that casts the worst shadow, the longest shadow, is not, as some would suspect, deliberate theft, deliberate intentional theft. It's ineptitude. Some of the guys, a fair number of them, may be really nice people, but they're inept. When it comes to understanding electronics, when it comes to a diagnostic process, they have no background, they have no interest in it. They don't know what the hell they're doing. So they wind up burning up a lot of money, just like in Tommy's case with the guy that uh, he had next door trying to fix something that was over his head. In those cases where it's ineptitude or an unwillingness on their part to grow as a shop owner, a technician, let them fail. So there's a, the, the issue, the issue at hand at, at these type of shops that you're just referring to, don't you? Is it's it's threefold, and I see this every day when I go out, and I think Sean would agree with me. Like I have the shops that riff that they'll they'll hire me. They'll tell me, hey, I got this Buick or whatever is doing this. Can you come out and look at it? I go out, I diagnose it for them, and I find out that some of these sh- that this shop A will actually eat my diagnostic fee, sell them the the work that it needs or whatever. And then move on. And I tell them, hey, man, you need to start either at least if you don't want to make any money, don't lose money. And but they're just they're definitely afraid of charging for diagnostics. Shop B will tack on, you know, the next the next amount of money, the line item me, and they'll, they'll, they'll do it the right way. They tell the customer, listen, this is beyond our, our capabilities. We, we have an, we have an expert we can call in. Um, his rate is X amount of money per X amount of dollars for this amount of money, he's going to give me a, you know, overall, you know, health check. Sometimes you can figure it out. Sometimes he needs more time. What do you want to do? No. Okay. Get out of my shop. Thank you very much. I can't help you. Shop number C will chuck the planet at the car and then call me. And then Tommy comes out and I have three used modules sitting in the trunk, not knowing which one's which 
on a global A architecture vehicle. So now I got to figure, I got to run around and figure out what's going on. And next thing I know, I'm getting phone calls from the customers because why haven't I fixed their vehicle? I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Why are you giving out my number to a customer? I am your consultant. I do not talk to your customer. You talk to your customer. So in a nutshell, Shop B, for the most part, rarely calls me because either they're very good at scaring their customers off or most of the times they have somewhat enough qualified or enough of enough of a capabilities to figure out some of the, the easier stuff. But A and C are the shops that, in my opinion, shouldn't be in business. But why are those shops so busy is uh, the question that I've had because I pulled in the parking lots at shops like that and they're full to the brim with vehicles. Now, is the shop making any money? I, I don't know. I, I can't see their that's, report. That's but... the question. That's the yeah. question. Yeah. Common fault is to, to assume or equate product uh, being busy with being productive. A lot of guys are really, really, really busy, but they're not very productive. It's like when you walk on an airplane and you look at a full airplane, you go, man, the airline's tonning it on this flight. But nobody asks how many are frequent flyers, how many are company employees traveling on a pass, how many are on specials. I mean, you know, you, all they do is they look at the activity. The activity in itself superficially means nothing. What you need to see is go into the numbers. And most of the time, these guys are busy, in my experience, um, because they're cheap. And yes. because they will install used parts, they will allow the customer to bring their parts. Um, you know, there's these are not, these shops don't represent the ideal. You know, that's, that's something that, that exists. Now, there's a lot of these guys in these shops. Um, at various levels, but the technicians themselves are really, really good at hanging parts and throwing in engines and transmissions and differentials and you name it, they can slam out wheel bearings and struts and they are good at it. They do good quality work and I see it, but they have that wall, that limitation where if their power probe doesn't solve it and their code that they get out of their, their stamp on scanner doesn't solve it, that's it. They have nothing beyond that. So it's not like these guys aren't skilled at what they do. I mean, it's, it's still a trade and they're very good at it. I see some of these guys throwing motors in and out of stuff. I'm like, I wouldn't been able to do it that quickly. Um, but they, they have that limitation. So, I mean, does it make sense to run a shop like you were talking about Lucas, where you get guys on, they can slam parts and then you hire in somebody to do the technical work. I mean, can you run a productive shop that way. And I don't know because I don't own a shop. I mean, you can, right. You can, you can configure it in that way. But I also think that, um, you know, for instance, one of the things that we come up against in my shop is, is I want to be able to provide them with additional opportunity. I don't want it to stop with them being a GS. I don't want it to stop with them being a BTEC or a, right? I, I want to continue to grow each one of them further and further up within the, the shop itself. Maybe it's that they want to be a service advisor. Maybe it's they want to own their own shop. So I think that we continue to train throughout those stages from, from even a, an apprentice all the way up through a diagnostician. 
And and I think that's one of the ways that you've got to look at this. And and I think you can run a profitable shop where you've got a diagnostician in the shop. But I think it comes down to strengths, right? So I've got a guy who is really good with engine mechanical testing and evaluation. I've got a guy who just understands electricity. He can see it. He understands it. It makes sense. He knows current flow and he can look at a wiring diagram and say, aha, right? And I kind of relate to that because that was me. It wasn't that, that some of the mechanical things were the strong suit for me. It was that I could look at that wiring diagram and I could see it. It made sense. So I think it comes down to dispatching to strengths um, and using those opportunities to put someone where they're strong in your shop. So where does that leave a diagnostician, right? Where does that put them? I, I think that even a diagnostician still has his strong areas. So we dispatch to that. Um, you know, I see a lot of shops who don't even have basic testing capabilities, right? We've got a lot in my area. And, and I've got to say, I think a lot of this comes back to standardization, right? I think we, we lack standards as an industry as a whole, um, you know, and, and you've heard the story where I've got a shop up here near me who made some repairs on a vehicle that shouldn't have been made, charged the client, and all the client cared about was the vehicle safe. And I had to say, no, listen, this thing, it's got to go to the scrapyard. It can't be fixed. It's done for. That's it. It's over. And a shop had just charged them $3,500 to band-aid it together. Later, I talked to the shop owner and he says, well, well, I helped them. That's what they wanted. They just wanted me to get it back on the road. Now, we need some standards of what we will and won't do, right? We need a, a, a baseline of where we're at here. Who was it that had an issue like that? Mike Molesky, who got challenged by uh, Pennsylvania Department of Transportation over some ball tires. Are you kidding me? I mean, not ball. I'm sorry. They were, they were. Uh, I think they were dry rotting, and they were also recapping. Yeah, I think I remember like something about that. Yeah. Like, and then I guess his customer's uh, brother was a shop owner who called BS on it and called the inspectors. I'm just like, who in the right mind would even consider that a recap tire who's who's literally who you can physically tell, like you can actually tell it's dry rotted, and you consider that safe? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like what's, what's wrong with some of these people, man? Well, and, and you know, I, I know that Dutch goes through the same thing that we do. Um, the North Carolina state safety really gets a lot of folks who just throw them right through it. And, and folks walk in the door and we explain, hey, listen, this is going to be about an hour to an hour and a half process. And they say, do what? <laughs> Not yeah. when we say that your vehicle is going to be safe. We mean your vehicle is going to be safe. That's the extent of this. Um, we take this seriously. We do this by the book. Well, everybody else just passes it. Not me. Get pencil whip it. Right. Yeah, it's not yeah. happening here. If you want it pencil whipped, you can go somewhere else. That's not happening here because so you guys all have my little girl. You guys all have safety inspections in your states. Two types of inspections. <laughs> we have emissions inspections. We need inspections. inspections. Jesus Christ. Yes, we do. We need inspections. Oh, you know how many cars I've totaled out and I see them down the road? I'm, yeah. on. I'm like, I told you this car needs to go to the junkyard. No, oh, no, I had my guy fix it up for me real quick. He just threw a couple lines and we're good now. I'm like, <laughs> I'm reminding me not to drive in front of you. The South Carolina has no uh, emissions or safety inspection. 
and they are literally right across the border from me. I can walk there in about three minutes, three and a half minutes. And when you see some of the cars that are that are coming through there, we just had a Jeep that uh, one of my clients had, and they bought it at a dealer in uh, a used car dealer in South Carolina. And they didn't have a pre-purchase inspection. The father crawled under the car and he got a flashlight and said, yeah, everything looks good. You know, well, when he, <laughs> they brought the vehicle for me um, because they thought it had a coolant leak, which it did. And I could share the photos. I don't want to violate any confidence. The frame was rotted through. I'm not talking surface rust that you can chip away. I'm talking about put your hands through the frame, fingers come out the other side, and you can do a little wave. Well, that was the right front where they, I guess when they attempted to fix it, they forgot about that. They did the rears. They cut the rear frame rails off and then butt welded and, and plated an, a section of an old frame, not a new one, an old one on it. And then monkey puttied. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with monkey putties, but they monkey puttied with fiberglass putty and then hit it with a rust preventer, so you couldn't see it because it was black. And when I showed this to them, because I said, look, I'm not, obviously I'm not charging you for the, the, this inspection. Drive it directly to the dealer. If this was my daughter's car, I named the business, my business after them, I would tow it there. The car is unsafe to drive. But in South Carolina, nobody cares. And those cars in South Carolina are traveling to North Carolina every day to Charlotte to go to work. So they're on the highways, they're on 45, they're on 77, they're on the local roads where my wife and my daughter are driving in their car. And there's nothing I can do about it. The feeling of helplessness is ridiculous. Yeah, we got the same thing around here in Minnesota with all the salt and the rust, and there's no safety inspections. And I remember seeing something very similar on an old Bonneville, and it was the late 90s where the subframe would rot out and the bushings would rot out, and you'd see them out on the road. The whole subframe transmission engine and everything be down on the ground, and the car's not going anywhere. Well, somebody brought one in with something very similar to what you were talking about. They they welded slash bolted in a piece of an old frame to hold up the back of this subframe, only bolted to the unibody of the vehicle. So <laughs> how long that thing was gonna last, but as a shop, couldn't really do much about it. Okay, hey, this is not safe to drive. And then it's up to them if they wanna take it down the road. So yeah, I've always said, boy, we need some safety inspections. Around I feel here. like any, any, any of the states in the rust belt, they should automatically <laughs> be inspected, man. I mean, some of the stuff I've seen is just horrendous. Uh, you know, here's the thing though, right? You've got at least three guilty parties. You, you've got a, you've got a automobile owner who chances are they've shopped around for a cheaper price for somebody to fix a car that shouldn't have been fixed, right? They went to a dealer, they went somewhere else and they said, Hey, 5,000 bucks, we'll fix it. It shouldn't be fixed, but 5,000 bucks will fix it. And they, they talked to Bob down the street and Bob says, ah, man, $200. I don't care. So you got a shop owner who's completely complacent in the whole situation. You've got a technician or the shop owner is the technician. And he said, yeah, whatever, man, I'll throw it together. I don't care. I'll fix it. So you've got the owner, the shop owner, and the technician all involved in that. And in a lot of cases, and I'm seeing a lot of this, 
car dealers, right? Now, there's a lot of really stand-up car dealers. I'm not calling them all out, um, but there are some car dealers who will sell you anything, and they don't care. And they say it was as is. It was as is. It was not look as is only goes so far. If you're ripping people off, that's a whole different story. You know, we had one come in a couple months ago that had just been to a dealer and had she had purchased this car and we pick it up. And I said, there is no way I'm letting you drive this out of here. And and the entire pinch weld was gone underneath the vehicle all the way up. You could see the all the way up to the very top of the car at the door jams. Right. And I said, if you're hitting the side, if you were to be T-boned, it will kill you. There's no way around it. There's no structural support in the middle of the car. Underneath the pinch welds is all gone. There's no structural support at all to protect you from a side collision. And he said, listen, you bought the car as is, and it's completely fine. You're not going to get hit in the side. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, thanks. (laughs) You got the lot of numbers for tonight too, Brady? (laughs) Oh, man, and it's... And it's just it's disheartening about about like for example like sometimes I sit in my shop by myself and I'm like, man, like should I just stay the dirt bag and, and just try to make as much as I possibly could? But and and that's the the real reason why I went mobile was because my shop is really small. Like I I'm in this, I'm in I'm in like the northwest side of Chicago, zero parking, uh, like two bays and one flat one flat bay. And that's it. That's all I got. Um, so I've had, I obviously, you know, word gets around sometimes that you're, you know, knowledgeable about something. So then I'll get a shop like, can I bring you this car? I'm like, dude, I, I got too much stuff going on here. Oh, but you can figure it out. Why don't you come over? I'm like, all right, well, on my way home, I'll, I'll just swing by. We'll work on it. And that's kind of how I started doing that. I'm like, you know what? If I can just, you know, go do this, because 80% of my diags are 30 minute diags. And I'll go back to my shop and then I'll keep wrenching and then I just keep going back and forth. But it, it's 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 gotten to a point where I'm so I'm so like drained because of the, the the neighborhood and like wearing all the hats and you know the typical beginner shop owner mistakes that I just decided that right now for I think going forward I'm just gonna do I'm gonna focus more on maybe doing mobile, maybe growing the mobile business. But you know, sometimes I sit there and I get, I gather my thoughts and I just go, man, like I, sometimes I feel like mobile guys, mobile program, not so much mobile programming, but mobile diagnostic guys. I sometimes feel like it's, we're in, sometimes in the same accord as the guys who do moonlighting. Like where does it start? Where does it end? The chicken and the egg. Same as with, with shop owners and guys who do side work at their houses. It's kind of like if maybe if I wouldn't do this, maybe there's more shops that would be able to charge what they could charge for Diag, and then there would be more positions for Diag guys at the shops. Or if you just go the total opposite way, and then you'd have Diag guys who are, you know, slamming motors and transmissions because there's not enough volume to, to pay a Diag guy. Hey, so Tom, you, which is which? You do realize that what you just did inadvertently, I don't know if you realize it, was follow Lucas's advice, right? What did Lucas say that he did? He dispatched to strengths. Guess what, buddy? You just dispatched yourself to your strength. Congratulations. Thank you. That's what you need to do. That's what I do at the shop. Now, if you're in a a competitive environment, it's easy if you pay straight flat rate. I don't. uh, For guys to get jealous and, and petty because why are you always giving the last three jobs to Joe? 
you know, because they're ball joints and he can knock them out in half the time. He's 200% efficient and you wrestle with one set for four hours, but that's not fair, man. I, he's getting more time than I am. And I, you know, all this stuff. So by following Lucas's advice, you just dispatched yourself to your strengths. God bless you. You can do it. You You can absolutely do it, you know, and having the wisdom to know what you're strong at and doing it is where it's at. I didn't get where I am by being good looking. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, you're prettier than Lucas, that's for sure. Right. Well, that don't take much. No, that doesn't take much. You know, I, 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 I always forget that he is in my phone under his real name, not Dutch. And I go searching for Dutch, and there's all these chats that say Dutch is a handsome man. You know, just like one right after another, where people have started mobile chats with that name. Uh, uh, my life, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I back to the mobile tech or mobile diag thing. You know, the the biggest issues I see, right, from a shop owner perspective, I worry because I see on Facebook, and I've even got friends who have started mobile businesses. I see folks who are not qualified to be doing the work they're doing. They start as mobile mechanics they don't have insurance now listen we've talked about this before it is extremely dangerous if you do not have proper coverage and we had a conversation the other day somebody said i don't need a million dollars in coverage i just need that for my vsp no trust me you can breathe wrong and end up with a million dollar claim right? That car catches on fire in somebody's home. It kills the whole family because it was in the garage and the shop owner's insurance says, who was the last person to work on that? And they say, Hey, it was that mobile guy. Guess who's footing the bill for that one? Because you can't financially fight that insurance company without your own insurance company. You need every bit of protection you can get. My biggest concern right now is, is we have people who are underqualified promoting themselves as professionals. That's not a mobile diagnostician, right? The mobile diagnostician has standards and values, much like what Tommy was speaking about. He knows better than getting into situations he shouldn't be into. He knows that it's his job to properly diagnose and set the conditions for which he'll work within this vehicle, right? Mobile mechanics don't always do that. There are some good mobile mechanics. I'm not saying they're all bad, but there is a difference. And I think the biggest thing that I see is the liability they face, the liability we all face as a whole. But that's a, a really important topic to me is to make sure that these guys who are going out here and doing this are protected because you could lose everything in the blink of an eye. Two, you got to remember that that I understand why doing becoming a mobile diagnostician is attractive. To, to a lot of people, right? You're not tied to a building. You get to visit different shops. Um, you're When you're there, you're by people that want you to be there in the sense that they need you, Correct. okay? you ha- They have a problem, they can't solve it, they need you. Sometimes when, when a client will bring in a car, they don't know that they need you until you tell them, and then they look at you like you got three heads. Anybody who calls Tommy, anybody who calls you, Sean, knows that they need you. And that mindset, it makes all the difference in the world in some encounters with people. The problem that I see happening is that just as in a brick and mortar, we have 
uh, technicians that strike out on their own that don't have a business education. You have younger techs that are striking out um, in that capacity who are completely undercapitalized. Yes. They don't have the equipment to perform the operations that are necessary. And they're trying to make do with equipment that doesn't work. Right now, my, my Snap-on guy is having a field day because he sold equipment to someone um, who said he was going to go out and become a mobile diagnostician, but he has no background at all in our industry. He was mm. just good with computers. He decided that this was a burgeoning market and he was going to capitalize on it. But instead of spending fifty or a hundred thousand dollars getting training, factory equipment, paying for subscriptions and everything, he went to the Snap-on guy, spent twelve thousand dollars, and now he thinks he's going to go to shops and he's going to program. Vaya con Dios. Yeah, he's <laughs> and he's given now that he discovered because my, my guy shows up every Wednesday that that this tool is not going to do what he needs it to do. He wants him to refund the money. Well, that's not his problem, right? That's not the dealer's problem. The dealer didn't entice him into buying this. The guy came to him, and I know my my dealer. I know Joe, and he told him, "This is not going to do what you want." But sometimes people are thick headed. And it's something that you you have to face. I I applaud anybody who wants to better themselves and and, and go out on their own. But I see this all the time, and not only and and not not only just for example in the outside looking in. Like I I know guys that went mobile because they couldn't find a shop worth of shit. Sorry for this word. Um, so they just decided just to go out on their own. I think Brandon was one of them. And there's another gentleman out of Phoenix or out of Arizona. I'm sorry, I think Cody. I think he posted one day, basically, you know, all his strife and troubles with with shops, and and they went on their own. And then I then I see other other individuals I don't want to name, and other chat groups and not chat groups, I'm sorry, other other forums and other other groups in Facebook, and the type of questions and the tooling, and you're just like, man. You guys also give us mobile programmers a bad name because, especially in my area, I know a lot of guys running around with autos, um, which I'm not saying anything that's wrong with it, but every tool has its place. It's not going to do everything. So then by the time it comes to Tommy, Tommy has to unravel uh, all this, all these situations, and now it's, it's kind of the same thing when you have a customer who spent all this money at a shop, and now that you're trying to do things the right way, they're, they're griping and they're moaning because now it's more money and their car still hasn't been fixed. And it's the same thing with some shops. It's like, oh, I already had a programmer tell me it's this and that. You're telling me that it's now it's this. Well, which one do I believe in? Well, I don't know. Either you trust me or you don't. So that's where, uh, where, where I feel that our mobile programming and diagnostic industry is going to head to and it's heading sooner than later. I don't know what you think about that, Sean. Yeah, it's... It's kind of unregulated in the sense that, like you said, pretty much anybody can buy up some scan tools, a laptop, and JBox, and go out and say, "Okay, I'm going to be a mobile, you know, programmer, diagnostician." And yeah, it's it's obviously a lot more. It's a lot more than that, and it's tough to have all the equipment that you need. You know, just just knowing how to find and you use all that equipment, but then the money behind it too. So it's not an easy thing for an individual to take on. You got to have that entrepreneurial spirit and um, really, really invest yourself in able if you're going to make that work. Okay. So 
my question has been, you know, cause I deal with a lot of students is, is this a viable career path for a student, right? You know, when they come to college and they're like, yeah, I'm going to be a technician at a shop. I'm going to do oil changes and stuff, but then I want to be this. And then I want to grow to that. And then I want to own my own shop. You know, some of them want to own their own shop. Is this, is a mobile tech, a, a thing to shoot for, for one of these young students that's looking towards the future um, that can go out and do this the right way that can use all the proper equipment and do the diagnostics correctly. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how that looks. Um, I almost feel like if the well-equipped shops, the well-trained shops, like not exactly like your scenario, but how you own a shop and then you're going mobile to other shops to provide that service you know, that could be a route for somebody to look at and say, okay, I could be the mobile technician for Lucas's shop where I travel to other shops. You know, I'm employed by Lucas. This is my home base. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Okay. Doesn't work. Why not? Every time I've seen that circumstance where either a mobile diagnostician hires an employee, trains them, or a shop goes out and hires uh, somebody who they train and then they dispatch, it gets to the point that within typically three years, that person leaves and strikes out on his own. They don't stay. And because they say, you know, I have all the experience and I know that I can, uh, because I've been drawing a steady paycheck, I can borrow uh, some money. And I don't have to start out. I I don't have to do all the same car lines I'm currently doing now because my owner has, you know, uh, eight OE scan tools. I can do Honda. I can do Toyota because TechStream is is cheap. Um, I can do some lines that I can get into for $10,000 and start go out and do it. And they do because they, they work out of pickup trucks. Some guys work out of their car and, you know, you open their trunk and they've got blow molded cases stacked one on top of the other, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I've never seen one where that's happened. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible, but in my experience, it just doesn't work because the guys take off. The guys that are ambitious, that's smart, that see how much money they're getting paid versus what the owner is getting paid. Now, again, they might not have the business acumen to know that the owner doesn't get to keep all that money. <laughs> He's got bills to pay. Oh, I, I love it. I'm sorry. I love it when I see the posts on like uh, the, the, the automotive tech groups, like I'm tired of working for and having that boss keep all my money. I'm going to go out and make my money yourself. And I just want to be like, you bumbling idiot. Don't you know that you actually keep most of the money that you produce? Like in the grand scheme of things and everything, it's just like what what the said owner of the business actually probably gets paid the less out of everybody. Yeah. Especially in the in the beginning phases of the businesses. Here's the deal though, right? Is it all comes back to the same thing? It doesn't matter whether you're a mobile diagnostician. It doesn't matter if you're a shop owner. You have to have business knowledge. You have to have processes, policies, procedures that take time and effort to write. You have to know what policies and procedures to write. You have to have screwed some stuff up, right? You got to know your financials. 
You might be mobile. You still got to know your financials. You've got to know where you stand financially because if you don't, you'll back yourself into a corner. It takes five to seven years to build a good reputation. Right now, I know a lot of these guys are using social media and things like that to build a good reputation, but you have to have a reputation with shops in your area. Right? Same thing with owning a shop. You've got to start with some business sense. You have to build a plan. You have to work around that. You can't just all of a sudden decide, hey, I want to be a mobile tech and jump into it. You can do that. But it's not always the most profitable way to do it. Right? You've got to do some planning first. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it, but there's costs associated with it you need to be aware of. Now, is that a good line for a student? I think that that the best mobile diagnosticians come from shops, right? They didn't see opportunity to grow. You know, you hear us talk about it on our podcast all the time. Why do good technicians stay at hack shops, right? It's time to leave the hack shops. If if your if your owner's not taking care of you, it's time to leave. Sorry, I said it. But my point is, is if if you're at a shop and you grow and you've learned these things, you've you've learned this skill and this trade, and you want to step out and learn the business ownership side of it, that's one thing. But don't think that jumping out and doing mobile diagnostics is simply going out and working on the car. You know, it it's in Michael Gerber's book, The E-Myth, where he talks about um, baking cupcakes. Right. And he talks about the lady who's got the bakery and she was baking cupcakes and then she bought the bakery and and she goes to him because she has no money. And she says, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I just want to bake cupcakes. And he said, well, owning a bakery is not the same job as baking cupcakes. That's not the way this works. Now, I get that mobile diagnosticians have it a little bit easier. You don't have all the overhead and the brick and mortar and all the things you have to manage and run. But the same concept still applies. Oh, well, the, the, the issue is that unless, and I don't know what the curriculum is, Sean, at your school, but unless at your school, unless the schools that, that these younger people are attending teach, teaches shop financials, then they're going out the most technically proficient student that you may have ever seen, the one out of 100,000 who's stellar, without a basis in shop financials without a basis in organization and scheduling is going to suffer until he learns it. And he'll never realize the dream that he hopes to achieve until such time as he begins to understand his financials. If he doesn't know how to break out his return on his investment for the equipment that he's going to have, if he doesn't know what his fixed expenses are, if he doesn't know how much to charge per hour, if he doesn't include his travel time, if he doesn't do all the calculations that are necessary to determine what's necessary to run a profitable business, if he doesn't learn that at school, can he muddle his way through it? Absolutely, he can. Lucas and I both know guys that are great at what they do. You put them in front of the car. But they stumble and they're not making any money because they don't know money and they don't know financials at all. All the while, they could have gone to a shop and made $75,000, dollars $100,000 a year doing the same thing with benefits and 
half of the liability, half of the stress. This, these things, you know, but a lot of it falls on our owners. Uh, Lucas, you have to know this. Amen. <laughs> there's no doubt in my mind. There's just been a, a massive, um, a massive shift in, in thought processes. And it starts with my generation. Um, so my father, rest in peace, he had a train of thought where, especially in business, that more is better. Even though you're cheaper, but if you're busy, it's good because you're making money. And I, it took me years to shed that mentality because I was busy. But then I look at the end of the week, I, I worked 15, 16 hours every day. We used to work seven days a week. But I, I, I'm like, well, where's, where's my money? I'm like, where, where is it? Like, why, why am I not, like, I'm producing? But if you do take into calculations all the time, I had to do this, do that, do that. I really wasn't making much. So I had to shed that, those ideals. And also a lot of my, my fellow generationalists, um, we, we aren't as money motivated as somebody like my father. My father was just happy finding a job. Like, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm, my parents came from Guatemala. They immigrated from Guatemala. And years ago, I had this conversation with my dad. I'm like, why the hell did you come to Chicago? I mean, the, the, the average temperature in Guatemala is like 70 degrees year-round like it's like why would you come to this frozen shithole like what's wrong with you how come you didn't pick los angeles or miami or even texas like why chicago he's like i was in miami i was there for three months and it was hard to find a job i go i had a i had an uncle here he told me to come over and he said he could find me work the same day and i actually i got there and i went to go get breakfast and somebody came into the spot asking me, hey, who wants to work today? My dad was like, okay. And I was in that factory. I didn't like something. I walked to the factory next door. And they were like, oh, we'll hire you tomorrow. So it's, it's like there was opportunity here. I, well, there, was, there, was, there was money here. And I was happy to be able to make money. I, and I think that's um, part, part of our problem is that it's just, you know, a lot of the shop owners, barring barring yourself, Dutch, that are older, still have that old mentality. You should be grateful you have a job. I don't have to worry about coddling to your emotions or your feelings or, or this and that. You should just be grateful that you're working. So you've been listening to me when I talk to other people. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, my dad was, you know, God bless him. He was old school to the bone. Like, that's just how he, how he was. And well, we, The way we were raised. Correct. Exactly and. Right. There is that there's not there was anything wrong with it. I just feel like times have changed and a lot of people, you know, you adapt or you die. And a lot of a lot of these shop owners, like I I've had a couple uh, ones, some of the most successful ones will tell me the same thing. You just have to adapt to the workforce. Times have changed and money isn't our like I said, especially for me, money is if money is was my motivator, I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be at the shop right now, humping my butt like I used to. To make money, but I don't, I, that's not, I want quality of life. And unfortunately in the industry, it's either the shop owner is still stuck in that past or is stuck in the financial past where he can't generate enough to pay himself a, de- a decent living wage. He can't afford to pay his guys. I have shop, I have shop owners that don't have service information still. I mean, they, they, they're great. They're great, great guys. I mean, I don't, 
I even feel bad talking about about this about them because they're they're generally good people. They just they just don't know, and it's the same the same perspective. But as long as you work, you're gonna be okay. I'm sorry, that just doesn't fly anymore. There has to be a combination of things. At least at least for me, at least most of my the people that I've in my age bracket that I have had these discussions with. Dude, I you have know. socks at home older than you. <laughs> I'm you a little know, on the older side here, all right? <laughs> I, I, years ago, I had this thought process that was very much like that, right? And and you can ask Dutch. We've kind of come up with a number that maybe one out of every five shop owners that you ask right now, what's your net operating profit? I don't care what the number is, what percentage, doesn't matter. One out of every five will be able to tell you what that number is. Maybe a few could tell you gross, but a lot of shop owners don't know what their numbers are. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if he remembers this, but years ago, um, I told Dutch about how many hours I was working at work. And I, I was much the same way, Tommy. I was saying, hey, I want to have some squishy time. I want to be able to relax. I want to do this. I want to do that. And Dutch looked at me, serious as could be, and said, you've got to sacrifice today for that opportunity tomorrow. Son, it's not going to happen if you don't work your ass off. Mm-hmm. Sacrifice now, today for the blessings of tomorrow. Amen. You remember? You remember? Yep. 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 And And here's the thing of it is I get it now right? Like we're building a shop and I see how much money it takes. I see all of the things that it takes. And, and the reality was, as I was spending my life, I was working my butt off and I was just like kind of getting right there to the almost, right? You've seen the little cartoon with the dude digging in the tunnel and there's diamonds just on the other side of it. Well, I just, every single time I stopped digging before I got to the diamonds, right? And the reality is, is to exceed or excel beyond the rest of the pack to set yourself apart you know the i can't remember the exact wording zig ziglar used but he said you know uh competition drastically drops off over 40 hours right when you get over 40 hours that competition boys it drops off and and that's what sets the 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 herd apart if you will is those who are willing to get out and put in the time and put in the hard work even when they don't want to even when it doesn't feel nice even when it's not exactly the ideal situation they put in that hard work and that's where those blessings of tomorrow come from here's the set, the the saying that I'm really really fond of and if lucas has heard me say this once he's probably heard it a thousand times Successful people do that which they don't want to do when they don't want to do it. And that drive is what gets people going. That's the one percenters, the two percenters. Right now, I'm looking at a sign that's on my wall that says some people want it to happen. Some people People wish it would happen. Others make it happen. I look at it every single day. And every single day, I have a choice. Which one of those three am I going to be? So with the right drive, you can do it. I work seven days a week for nine years. If you've been at my facility, I have a nice shop. I did had to start it midlife because my employer declared bankruptcy and took everything that I had, and they declared bankruptcy twice. Oh, wow. So I, I'm telling you that if I can do it, and I am nothing special, 
anybody can do it as long as you have the drive. But I was raised in the East European tradition that's very similar to Tommy's father, which was men worked. I didn't change diapers. I didn't go to ball games. I worked because men were judged by their ability to provide. And my That's father, what it was. My father provided, man. I mean, that God bless his soul, man. Like he, 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 he worked. He, 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 I don't know how he did it, man. I mean, he, he, I, I at the end of the day, like I feel in awe over his accomplishments coming to a country and not knowing the language. And he, he found and lived the American dream. Like, I love it. I love it here. And I, and I tell people all the time, like, you guys really don't know how, how bad it is. Like I, I had some uh, unfortunate situations with, with some gangs when I was a, when I was a child and I had a ship, I had to get shipped at home. I saw what it was like to be poor. Like I didn't experience it obviously, but like the kids I ran around with, like, all the, the situations when I see how how poor real poverty not I can't buy the new iPhone like I I, I can't eat today and and I see a lot how, uh, I see everything he went through and, and, and how he did it and but then he did it but then he got sick and passed away so then it's just like whoa in, in life, it's 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 you get to a point where you're just like, like, well, well, where's that balance? And and I admire, I admire a lot of these a lot of these guys that that go out and they venture out on their own. But I also I also hate the fact that the industry almost makes you do that. And I guess that's where I'm getting at with this. I feel like maybe if the industry would, would like if the like if the industry were better to shop owners and it trickles down, we wouldn't have to do this. We can live, we can make great money at a shop and live a comfortable life. And that's kind of where I would, I would hope that one day we can get there. You know, I'll, I'll tell you as a father that I think your dad feels pretty successful looking back on it because he gave you what he envisioned because that's what fathers do. Yep. Right. That that's why you get up every morning as a dad. This ain't nothing to do with you anymore. It's about the people you love, about the little ones. I lost my old man. He was fifty-five years old. I was twenty-three. He he worked all he knew how to do was work. That was it. It was not. And so here's this this diminutive man. He I don't think he was five feet seven inches tall. And when he died, this little guy who's a photographer taking pictures of weddings and confirmations and everything filled the funeral home with people. They were waiting outside because of the quality of life that he led. You know, it wasn't that he was money motivated. He wasn't. But he was motivated by his obligation. And a lot of people, the successful people, and I want you to pay attention to this, guys. There's a difference between responsibility and obligation. You can disavow your responsibility. You can never disavow your obligation. Old school guys like me, we're, we're, we're pills, we're dinosaurs, we're pricks, right? Where this is my way to the highway. This is what I expect. This is, you're lucky you got a job, right? I'm not going to hold your hand and tell you how, how, how proud I am of you. 
or I'm not going to give you a participation for you want your participation trophy. Here it is. It's a paycheck at the end of the week. That's it. It's the satisfaction that you have to have yourself through your self-esteem to know that you busted your ass and you provided service and value to another human being. There's your reward. Don't look at me for an attaboy. I'm not a life coach. I'm your employer. I'll bust my ass to do everything I can to help you reach your dreams as long as you play by my rules. Show up on time. Be ready to work. Give me your best uh, efforts. Learn as much as you can. Ask me questions. But if you're just going to sit back and bitch, eh, I don't need you. We had no place for whiners in my house growing up. That's a... (laughs) It's a tough bill to present to younger people today. I'll be, I'll be very honest with you. Um, You know, cause I deal with them on a day to day basis and I I was a great students. Don't get me wrong, but yes, there is, there's definitely a a change in the mindset kind of like you were referring to Tommy, as far as what motivates them and their thought process relating to a paycheck and work and it is very, very different um, from, you know, the way that we were raised. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's a challenge to try to cross that bridge uh, with the next generation or generations coming up into this field. So it's going to be very interesting. And that's going to gonna be a pl- problem. Plays out. That's yeah. going to be a big problem. A big problem for mobile diagnosticians. Yeah. Live it's to work or work problem. to live. Right. It's going to be a huge problem because a guy who's starting a business mobile or brick and mortar has to make certain sacrifices in order, as Lucas said, in order to get ahead, because the guys that are going to call you can't call you if they don't know that you exist. They can't know that you exist if you're not out there hustling. If you value your free time more than anything else, then you're going to be a 40 hour person, 40 hours a week. Go work in a bank. Do something else. Go to school. Have your nine to five. Work in banking industry. Do whatever you're going to do. But you're not going to establish the reputation that Tommy has. You're not going to establish the reputation that Sean has or any of the other guys that I so very much admire, even including Lucas, because he's younger and he's doing it. I never really liked the kid, tell you the truth. But at (laughs) least he's he's going out and he's, he's doing stuff, right? I'd adopt him if I could, but really there's a problem because he can't speak English that well. He's, you know, with advance and it's hillbilly. Appalachia. And, okay. It's <laughs> just the way we talk up my here. My accent was bad. Holy <laughs> You got no idea. I live in the same state, Tommy. I don't understand the mother. I got to wind up, go get in a freaking dictionary. It's like local yokel 101. I hey. can't understand what this Green Acres hillbilly is talking to me about half the you time. You think that's bad. I had palava on the phone the other day and one of our employees that works for our other business walked up and started talking and he said holy shit i thought you were bad i've learned to understand you but i don't know what he just said i said it's okay i don't either it's cool (laughs) (laughs) so that you know that that problem of the younger generation not wanting to do what's necessary is going to thwart the success of a lot of the younger guys that want to strike out as mobile di- diagnosticians because they don't want to do the work. Now, during, you know, nine to five, Monday to Friday, they may go and hustle. 
But what about the call that comes in? You're on your way home. Hey, this is Joe and so-and-so. This car's got to go tomorrow. We, we got really behind. I'm sorry to call you late. I, I, I need you to come across and cover this for me. This family's going on vacation. They need to, uh, to take the car on vacation. What are you going to do? The guy who values and says, well, I have to strike a work-life balance. He can go home for his work-life balance. But he's not going to get the call from the guy again unless there's absolutely no other alternative. He's not going to be the first call. He's going to call the guy who busts his butt. He's going to call the guy who says, yeah, hang on a minute. Let me call my wife. I'll tell her I'll be late. I'll let her yell at you later on. Maybe I'll pick up a pizza for the kids on the way home. That's the guy who's going to get the job. That's old school. That's me. Well, look, it still so, works. It still works, though. It still gets you. It still gets you the call. It still gets you the jobs, even if you're tech, and gets you those tickets because they know you're going to bust it out. And it, it was a quote that I, I don't remember where I saw. I saw a long time ago. It says, "You will be successful because other people are lazy." And let me tell you, that's definitely true. As long as you got that hustle, you're going to be beating out a lot of people. Um, that's, I found that to be true no matter what job I worked at. Yeah, definitely. And and here's the deal. If that's what's important to you, if there's anything, if, if there's a message I can give to somebody that wants to be a mobile diagnostician, if there's something you need to hear, look, I get aspirations and all, but business ownership is not for the faint of heart. No. If, if you want work-life balance, if you want to work a nine-to-five, if that's what you're looking for out of life, go work for somebody like Dutch. Go work for another shop that that is already putting in the legwork and doing all that so you don't have to wake up at 2 a.m. thinking about that car. Did I tighten that PCM connector or not? Did I double-check that wire, right? Guys, I wake up at 3 a.m. almost every single morning thinking about, oh, what about this? Oh, did I pay that bill? Did I do this? Did I do that? That is ownership. Right. And it's not always fun. It's not always great. And, you know, there's this really great book and really great TED talk, and it's called Extreme Ownership. And at the end of the day, just like Truman said, the buck stops here. It's not my employee's fault. It's not my technician's fault. It's nobody's fault in this shop except for mine. I am the only one who has that responsibility. Right. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I am the shop owner. It is my responsibility no matter what. If you don't want that stress and you don't want that obligation, if you don't want that, you know, responsibility on your plate, for God's sakes, go work for somebody that's going to treat you right. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a mobile diagnostician. I think it's a great thing you can do. But if it's responsibility that you don't want, if you don't want those hours and you want to be your own boss, I promise it's not all it's worked up to be. I love my job. Don't misunderstand. I love what I do, but I promise it's a whole lot harder than it looks from the outside looking in. Yep. I think I think any business per se is is difficult. But yes, I think uh, like if I compare the two businesses, right, between owning a shop, doing the mobile stuff. Um, the easiest part about being mobile is the fact that it's just me. Like I, I don't have to, the quality control aspect uh, was the most difficult for me because I, I did everything. I, you know, I called customers. I, I looked source parts, wrote up estimates, you know, got, got work approved. So it took away from actually the, the, the QC part of it and dealing with, with employees. Like it's, 
it was just too much. It's it's uh it was it was not something to my strength because it was it was it was extremely difficult. And so in that aspect, yeah, it, it's 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 two businesses, two whole different sets of problems. But definitely shop ownership is is like you say, it's not for the it's not for the weak for sure. It's an expression that that I learned in my former uh, my former career, and that I think that anybody who's considering striking out on their own, whether it's opening a shop or becoming a mobile diagnostician, she really has to take to heart. And that is that you can delegate all the responsibility that you want in the world to your employees, to the customer, whoever you want to. But none of the, you can delegate all the authority, but but none of the responsibility. Correct. You can tell, so, you know, you, you're authorized to do this. I can tell the tech, uh, okay, go ahead and do this. But ultimately, just like Lucas said, it comes back to me. It's always my fault. Technician did something wrong. It's my fault. Did I not train him right? If he was having a hard time, did I not see what was going on? Did I not ask him what's going on in his life? It's my fault. The buck stops here. Lucas was right. I don't want to say that too many times because it'll go to his head and then you won't be able to see his head in the, in the frame for the Zoom <laughs> meeting because it'll be just too big. You'll get like a lunar or a sonar eclipse going on here and you just wouldn't be able to see it. As it is now, he has, to, he has to walk through the door sideways because his head just can't fit in it, you know. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, you know, you know, and, and so talking about Truman and the buck stops here. If you ever have a chance to go read some of the decisions the man had to make, like him, hate him, doesn't make a difference. The man had to make some decisions that I don't think anybody on this meeting would ever want to make. And he always said that, that as my job, that's my job. It's, it's my responsibility. The buck stops here. And, and I think it's really important that if, if you're working for a shop that tries to put that responsibility of ownership, that burden of ownership onto you, I got to tell you, I mean, we keep talking about this. If you're working for a shop that does that, it's, it's time to move on. I hate to say that, but. That's the other situation here. Like, I don't understand some of these guys. Like, there's, yes, there's more hack shops than there are you know, amazing, well-run, professional repair facilities. But why? Like, like, quit. <laughs> you know how many times I see all these posts on, on, on the professional pages? Like, oh, my, my boss dogged me for this, and my boss said this. Well, quit. Like, we're, we're it's, it, we, we are in demand here. Like, you don't you don't need this shit. And that's another problem too. You keep allowing this stuff to happen. Because you keep not working for these places. That which is not corrected continues. Yes. It's like an abusive relationship. I see these amazing shop owners who cannot find work, and I see these amazing technicians who can't find a good shop. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, like what what happened here? But you now know, we, we have an area where we have unrealistic expectations, where you have somebody with very little skill who doesn't want to work any weekends, doesn't want to work past five o'clock, wants to work in an air conditioned shop, doesn't want, doesn't want, doesn't want, doesn't want, doesn't want. And when he comes out of school, he wants 23 bucks an hour to change oil. 
and your customers want to pay twenty dollars to change it, get an oil change done. Because that's <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're you're right. Because that's what other businesses by owners who deal in the volume or transaction based model advertise to get people into the door. Yep. Yes. You know, we we just talked today, and uh, there may be a certain moderator within ASOG who posed the question to the group, like, are we just going to let these people do this? <laughs> like, are we just going to keep doing this? Why are we doing this? What? Why are we, you know, and, and I, I think at the end of the day, the hope is, is that those shop owners will eventually learn. But that said moderator, who is now turning bright red. Um, that that was me, by the way. B basically, what <laughs> happened was I, I I made a post about the fact where a three dollar light bulb cost me, or a two dollar light bulb cost me thirty thousand dollars in revenue, uh, because I was when I first started the business, I didn't have that much of a of a customer base. I had a um, construction company that brought me their fleet of vehicles to maintain. And uh, being a student and wanting to improve my business, I attended a coaching session given by a big, big organization at that time that mm. they've been bought out. And they said, look, you charge for everything you do. You're in business. Uh, business people understand. Truck came in, did services to it and charged a guy two dollars for a uh, light bulb and a couple of tents to put it in. And uh, he was normally dropping off typically. Uh, two to three cars a day, you know, and I didn't, I didn't see him for a week. And I called him up and he said, look, you're treating me like a firestone. I bring my cars to you because I trust you and you're reaching into my pocket. You want to charge me for a light bulb. And I didn't see him for a year. And I had looked over my past year's receipts. It cost me $30,000. So my attitude was um, as a group, why are we entertaining people who think, that this is the appropriate thing to do. We're in a business to build relationships, right? We're in a business to take care of our customers. I'm not saying doing free diags. Don't start me on that. But this was this was a, a light bulb on a Chevy with a guy who'd spent thirty thousand dollars a year with me, and I was giving him basically twenty bucks, right? Because it was a light bulb. I I put it in. It didn't cost me anything. And a bunch of people that jumped on my case because how dare I give away anything free? Excuse me, it was 1157 or you know whatever the hell the bulb was in the rear of this of, of the Chevrolet. What's the big deal? I was advertising. I was going to spend a lot more money in advertising for that, and then I learned to just take that and build it into my fixed expenses in the month, a certain amount of money, which covered that, so I could continue to give that, those away, and the customer was indirectly paying for it through my labor rate, but the shop wasn't, you know, and it was a way simply of me saying, thank you. Thank you for bringing your vehicles to me. Thank you for entrusting me with, with, with their care. I realize you have choice that you can go anywhere. Let me uh, show me uh, my appreciation to you by providing this life. Well, now, since I, I, you know, since that happened and I, I changed uh, and I remedied that many, many years ago, now I get them pizza or bring donuts by for lunch for fleet accounts. You know, I, I, I do that mm -hmm. sort of stuff to take care of, of them. So I don't have that issue anymore. But yeah, that's to me is, is I hate the transaction based business model. I loathe it. I think that it's, it's done more to hurt our industry and to adversely affect technicians 
than any other business model because the, trans because the, the, the transaction-based business model looks at technicians as being, and we dehumanize them because when you have a tech yep. who is really good at what they do, what do you, what is he called? He's called a thoroughbred, isn't he? He's a machine, isn't he? Well, that's stud. A <laughs> yeah. yeah, stud. Yeah. Right. He's a monster. He's not a man anymore, though, is he? And he's expendable because if he doesn't want it, you know, when he starts to slow down and, and his ability, you know, his hands cramp up and he's he's not as fast as he used to. Oh, shit. I'll just get somebody else. Bring in the you young buck. Bring in the young buck who wants to bust out 100 hours a week. No, I can't. I can't operate that way. I, I got to take care of my people. You know, I, I got to take care of my people. And that's a problem that the young mobile guy is never going to understand. Yep. I don't have to tell you guys. <laughs> the, one of the best ways to market or advertise your business is the word of mouth. And that starts by taking care of people, obviously doing the job right, being, um, you know, per performing the job at a certain standard, but taking care of people, like you're saying, like a light bulb here or there, or helping out where you can, where it makes sense, not cutting yourself short, but going that little extra bit for somebody. And it makes all the difference. Um, it was true as a tech for me. And it's, it's true doing my mobile thing. Um, it, it, it spreads like crazy. It, all of a sudden, all kinds of people are calling you. Hey, I got your number from so and so. <laughs> I heard you do good work. Yeah, the the you know one of the the replies to my post, um, it said if you start you know giving stuff away free, you're starting to build expectations in this. And I said, look, the cost of the bulb and the labor really didn't affect my bottom line. They didn't as a young business starting out, and it was a very very small amount. It was twenty bucks tops, right? Point two, and I think at that time I was like seventy five or eighty bucks an hour. Um, and the bulb didn't cost very much, but the loss of $30,000 worth of revenue the following year, you know, from that point for a year forward hurt because I didn't have another cost customer base to fall back on. There wasn't anybody who was going to step up. I would have had to have gotten another, even at my RO at the time, which was like 250 bucks per car. I was going to have to get another 10 people or 12 people a month to make up for the difference in what I just lost. What happens when the mobile tech doesn't want to step up? Who's he going to lose? You think Lucas is going to call him if he calls a, a, and says, Hey, listen, I need you to come in. Uh, because I have this work, I'm backed up, and and you know I really could use your help. And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, but Lucas, you you want me to come in on a Saturday? And I don't work Saturdays. You think the next time Lucas has a problem, he's going to call that guy first? Heck no, no. And and you know, look, here's the other thing: is is that if you're a mobile tech, you still got that responsibility, right? You come to my shop and and you do a, a testing routine and you don't give me an answer or you give me the wrong answer. Listen, I understand as a business owner that the buck stops here, right? And I will make that right to my client. Don't, don't ever question that, but you dang well better know that I'm looking at you saying that was your responsibility, right? You're a business, right? You're not, you're not a technician that I can look at and say, I should have trained you better. I should have put a different process in place. I should have given it to a different tech. 
No, I called in a mobile diag tech. This is your specialty. You were to take care of this. It's a good way to lose a client pretty quickly if you miss the ball on that one. You know, and, and you still have that responsibility as a mobile diag tech. You, you can't get rid of that. You know how I built my customer base, Sean? I was the only shop in the area that would guarantee that if the person followed, guarantee in writing that if you followed my diagnostic protocol, if you let me run the testing that needed to be run and do what I needed to do after all of it, if I couldn't tell you and prove to you what was wrong with your car, you didn't have to pay me. That set the, the bar. And so far as I know, to this day, I'm one of the only shops that does that. And I'm not at the it. level. Was it, Oh, yeah, no, there you go. See, I didn't know Lucas did that, but he's not going to lie to me. So yeah, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't surprise me that he would, knowing his character. And I don't have the skill set that Tommy does. I'm good at the stuff that I was good at before, okay, when I was coming up. I can't do the same stuff, but Chris Kern can. You bet your ass he can. And Chad, my, my Euro guy, can. And I have the equipment for him. You want to see somebody run a scope? Give it to Chris. Give it to Chad. Have fun. I'm not at the level, that level anymore. I've delegated that, I assume, complete responsibility in case something goes wrong. If you're not willing to make that commitment, you ought not be in the damn mobile diagnostic business. If you're going to come out to somebody's shop running your testing and go, eh, I don't know what the hell's going on, but pay me $350. You can suck my things because mm. it ain't going to happen. Sorry, Lucas. <laughs> you, can, uh, you can take a long walk off a short pier. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> but then there's the, there's the opposite of that. There's um, I get these calls and, and I hate this, but it's almost unnecessary. And I don't know what you do about this, Sean. And I think we discussed this in one of our podcasts. Um, well, I, this car is doing this and this every, you know, every third full moon during uh, Mercury retrograde or some other bullshit. <laughs> and so I just tell the customer, I'm like, listen, man, I go, we have two options. We can either wait till it's actually broken or you can pay me for every single hour that I'm there trying to replicate this issue. And I, and I can't even guarantee you that. Because it's such an intermittent issue. Like there's some sometimes there's some of these intermittent problems that you just don't catch them. So it's just an unfortunate reality that I have to have these conversations with shop owners. Like we're we're, we're, we're to set up that certain expectation because it's such a it's such a weird issue. Yeah, but if you set up the expectation and you tell somebody that, then the onus shifts to them. Absolutely. Right. And they Absolutely. are the one who makes that decision. Once they make that decision, okay, listen, I understand it's going to happen. It might cost me 700 bucks to run testing on this. I'm willing to eat it if it doesn't, if it doesn't happen. I'm willing mm -hmm. to eat it because this customer is such a great customer. I do his car and his wife's car and some of the stuff that he brings me from work. And he's referred a bunch of people to me. You know, it's a lot of money, but I believe in you. Give it a shot. If it don't work out, hell, at least I've tried. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I, I always... I always speak with the truth as, as, as well as respectfully, of course. Um, but sometimes it's, you just have to stay two steps ahead. I do that here and, and we do what we do in mission testing here as well. And my, when, anytime I get a, a customer that comes in with oxygen sensor codes, 
and doesn't have a, a, a completed converter a monitor, I forewarn them, listen, this is going to be step one. We need to address the problems in front of us. These monitors do not run because you have a fault in the system and it's a checklist. Computer goes through a checklist and I spend some time and I, I scared off customers, but I'd rather do that. And then, you know, thinking that this is the only thing they need to repair the vehicle to pass an emission test. And it avoids a complete drama. And I actually had a an interesting conversation with one of my with uh with the guy I have working for me right now because he he feels the total opposite. He's like, why do you waste your time telling him this? If there's another problem, then you can sell him diag and then you can figure it out again. I'm like, no, because it's 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 an first of all, it's an owner vehicle and it's about expectations. They're not mechanics. You are. You're the technician here. You're the professional here. You need to forewarn them so they can make the best decision possible. Some of these convert. Some of these converters on these junks are in the thousands, and the car's probably worth 500 bucks. It's probably a, ride, a rotted pile of junk. So let them decide what they want to do. My job is to inform them, not try to bring them back for more work. No, that's not what we're about. That's not what I want to do. I want to just do the best decision I can to inform them. So that way, not only do I have an informed customer, I don't have problems. Oh, you charged me X amount of money because um, to fix my car for the missions, and it still ain't passed. That's how I how, how well, I you, look at that part. You got that experience to know uh, how those situations will unfold, and unfortunately, you know, we gotta we gotta <laughs> suffer through experiences like that, uh, you know, to gain that <laughs> that foresight. In a lot of cases, um, yeah. I, I've I've definitely been there myself. The intermittent thing, I, I'm still uh, perfecting my approach to that because, yeah, uh, what do you, how do you charge somebody two hours and well. I don't have any answers for you, <laughs> but here's what I did. But um, I feel pretty, pretty crappy about that. But having the foresight ahead of time and explaining it, that's, that's where it is. Uh, you know, I think Dutch has actually got a write up on it on how to explain that if I remember correctly, but you know, in our shop, we just, we're open and transparent about it. You know, the, just like in at the doctor's office, you know, a lot of times the concern has to be present for us to determine the cause of your concern. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes we can't recreate that. Now we can start here and here's the initial testing expectation. Um, we'll contact you if it doesn't present itself. We're going to be back in contact with you and let you know, hey, we're going to have to do additional testing or we can wait it out and see what happens. Right. But I, I think you know, and, and that's what I tell my guys here in the shop at all times. It is our job to provide the evidence. It's our job to give them the information they need to make a decision. It's not our job to tell them what that evidence necessarily means, right? You can tell them the cause and the consequence, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not our responsibility to tell them what that means for them. Should they or should they not fix the car? We can give them information, but we shouldn't be making that call for them. And so, you know, we give them all the information, right? We do an evaluation that is probably one of the most thorough you'll ever see. And within that evaluation, we tell them even about cosmetic issues with the vehicle. So they have a complete picture of what that automobile needs. You know, that's one of the things that I think about with mobile techs. Um, you know, here in our shop, we always talk about evaluations and I know all you guys have heard about a, a, an evaluation. Some folks use it as a sales tool. We use it as a protection for our techs, for the shop where we evaluate that vehicle before any work's done on the vehicle at all. 
right? It gets an evaluation. It has pictures, videos, notes from the technician, and then estimates are created for each one of those items, and they are prioritized from top to bottom. And so I could not imagine when we first started doing that, spending that 30 minutes to an hour to even some cars, two, two and a half hours just to write an estimate for all of these things. And now I look at it and say, there's not any way that I would let a car leave here without that evaluation. People say, well, why would you do that? Why, why do you feel the need to do that? Is it because you want to sell folks something? No, because it's my responsibility as a professional to set proper expectations for what they can expect with their vehicle, right? That's my job. That's what they pay me for. So that's one of my concerns with mobile techs is, are they presenting that? Now, if they're not dealing directly with the client, that's a different story. But if you're going to someone's home, you're looking at their vehicle for them as an individual, not as a as looking at it for a shop. You have some additional liability because you're a professional. There's there's been a number of of news stories over the years, right? There was one in New Hampshire a few years ago, older lady in her 80s goes into a a, a tire store. She's got a flat they change the tire. I think they just put the spare on. They send her down the road. Two weeks later, brake line bust on the automobile. The judge faults the shop's insurance for the failure and says, you're the professional. She just brought it to you. You told her she was good to go. Here's your invoice. It says, you know, this, that, or the other. You put your good housekeeping seal of approval on it. You're the professional. You should have told her that brake line was, was going to bust. The shop owner said, well, how could I have told her all we did was jack it up and put a tire on it, right? But you're a professional. You had her vehicle in your possession. It's your responsibility to let her know if it's safe or not. Now, that's probably an extreme case. But this is on the extremer side, I – sorry, I didn't know you were, oh, you were done. No, you're fine. You, I, I, I am done. When – before I turned to shop into some mechanical repair facility, my dad used to do tires. So we got sued one time. Because um, we used to have this thing where we would check your air pressure. Like if you just wanted an air pressure check, which is a couple of bucks, you'd come in, you top you off, make sure your your, your tires are calibrated to you know factory specifications, a couple of bucks, and you're out the door. Well, one of these vehicles was on a road trip. A tire a tire blew out. A lady was driving it, lost control, flipped over. Um, somebody either got hurt or killed. I don't remember. I was probably like 12, 13 years old. Um, so the insurance was like, uh, they actually came and got a statement because I'm actually the one that did it. And they're like, well, what happened? Can you tell me what exactly? I'm like, well, you know, this gentleman came in. He wanted his air pressure checked because he said he was going out of town. We checked his air pressure. And that was it. He's like, did you guys do this? Did you guys? I'm like, no, we, we were told to check your air pressure. It's an air pressure check. Well, long story short, they, they, they brought in a, I guess it was a bigger a bigger deal because they brought in an, an expert and they what they what they claimed happened was something impacted the the tire um, and then the tire proceeded to blow out and then the lady uh, lost control so subsequently so it was you know something on the road and then her faulty driving or situational awareness that caused the vehicle to roll over and tilt so. It, it, it's an extreme, but it's it's a good extreme because I 
I see exactly what you're saying, but like in our case, like how can you fault little tire shop for not, you know, looking at the whole vehicle when we just we're just told to put air in it. So that's when it becomes like the chicken and, and the egg, like you say, like whoa, shouldn't we have inspected the vehicle a little bit better? I mean, we weren't really equipped at the time, to be honest with you. Our 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 own point is to do tires, right? Like you said, this shop, all they did was slap the tire on, and they got faulted for the car being a rotted pile of shit. I, you know, I, I was in a meeting the other day, and it was with a uh, someone from a an insurance organization was there. He was talking about loss ratios are reaching the 70% mark in auto repair, right? Now, Dutch can probably put that in perspective. That's high. That's real damn high. That's like, oh, shit high, right? That 70%. Of all lawsuits, automotive relations, related, no, it's a it's a, a loss ratio. So they have a loss ratio. What are losses within a specific market field. segment? Yeah, market segment. And and right now, uh, I mean, I want to say that most are what ten percent, five to ten percent, something like that's a standard. And and automotive is running unbelievably high right now. And they were talking about the litigious nature of um, folks right now. And they were talking about uh, some very, very uh, plaintiff-friendly decisions, right? And they were saying that that it is a common theme, and that's causing a lot of this. Now, that made me think, well, gosh, they're taking note of this. We should probably be taking note of this as well. This is, this is a trend. Um, I think this goes bigger than that. I I think we have a professional responsibility to make sure we're making the correct repairs. Right. And, and that falls back on a mobile diagnostician as well. Um, You know, I I don't know if anybody knows about the John Eagle collision case. Go read that. If that doesn't give you the Honda crawlers, the Honda fit. Yeah. Yeah. I, my professional perspective on that is, I think the, the the case was spot on. I, I think the case was spot on. That's my professional opinion well, on that case. Well, but I mean, think about how much money that was. Think, think about what they're paying him. I, I think it's what, like 25 cents a second for every second that he lives or something like that after the, after the case. Um, and, you know, you're right. It was spot on. The, the shop shouldn't have done what they did. Can you give right. me the gist of that one? I haven't heard about it. Um, the so in a nutshell, uh, an, a said body shop had a, like a Honda Fit that the roof caved in for like a, a tree or something. So went to auction. Somebody bought it. They repaired it, but and no, no, no. So the insurance paid for the repair on this vehicle, right? Insurance paid for the repair on this vehicle at a body shop. Body shop actually didn't perform the repair properly. They glued the the roof of the vehicle to the car that's what they wanted to pay for but in the the factory procedure you know obviously it needs to be welded at a at certain angles or blah 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 i'm not a body guy but that's the gist i got of the, of the of the lawsuit so car was sold a dealership sold the car it got traded in dealership sold the car somebody bought it got rear-ended um car burst into flames they couldn't open the doors and i think what was it like three people died or one um, person died no one person I, died Right. Well, the I, I can't remember exactly. You'll have to go look it back up. Yeah. 
But I remember that the driver of the car who was trapped was burning in the seat yes. as the car mm-hmm. was on fire mm-hmm. for a significant amount of time. And, and they did get him out and he did live, but it is going to cost them a, I mean, it, it's big millions. Yeah. Right? It's, 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 it's a lot of, I can't remember the exact number, but they brought in a professional the professional said what happened was car got impacted from the rear. And obviously these are, these are you know, unibody vehicles. The roof of the vehicle was not attached to the car because when you're, you're glued to the vehicle, it's not attached. So the roof didn't do anything to absorb the collision. So the doors did, and hence why the doors wouldn't open, and that's why he couldn't get out. Yeah. Yeah, see, that's the, the, the issue. That the defense, from the body shop's perspective, was that the insurance company controlled how much they were going to pay. And the insurance company did not want to pay to have the repair performed according to standardized guidelines. Correct. So what they did was they bonded, is the term, the roof to the vehicle. And because of that, the structural integrity was compromised. The result of the structural integrity was that basically when the car got into the accident, just like Tommy said, it went into like a cereal bowl. Mm-hmm. If you can imagine a cereal bowl, so the ass end pinched the doors, and egress was impossible to achieve. Um, so the body shop was like, "Well, we're just an agent for the insurance company. This is what the insurance company authorized. So we did what they authorized." Because the customer didn't want to pay any more money. The customer doesn't know they're paying the insurance. There's a deductible. They're simply assuming that it's going to be repaired correctly. Well, according to the guidelines established by the manufacturer. So now we had a he said, she said. The body shop's like, well, what do you want us to do? Lose money? We didn't, you know, we can only do what somebody else is willing to pay for. This is what they were willing to pay for. So at, at that point, there's a case for diminished value. There are a bunch of other things that, that could have gone on. Um, but it was, uh, it was a, a horrible, horrible event, one that should have been prevented, but um, that need not have occurred were it not for somebody, a bean counter, an insurance company, essentially controlling the process and the body shop subordinating Mm-hmm. Right. Agreed to subordinating doing what's right for doing what was profitable. Yeah. Because like like what Lucas said, and I'm and I'm pretty okay with it to a to a point. Like, no, I won't. Get it out of my shop. But I think what the body shop may have, or in all good intents and purposes, I think maybe it was one of those things where it's just like, well, if we don't do it, they're gonna pull out and they're gonna go to another body shop. And I think maybe that might have been their fear at the time. We got to remember, too, if they were a direct repair facility and they refused the job, they could lose a direct repair status. And that's, you know, that's that's a big thing. You know, insurance uh, body shops. Boy, that would be a great discussion for you, Sean, that the body shops are under tremendous amount of pressure to get stuff done 
if they, you know, if they want to repair it correctly and the rent of cars is, is going out further than the insurance company wants to pay for, they apply downward pressure on the body shop sure. to get the work out. You know, uh, I know of a shop that, that's very close by that lost their accreditation, the bad word, but they, they lost their right as a direct repair facility because they only knew one way of fixing the car. It was going to be fixed the right way and that was going to be the end of it. But because they were fixing it that way, the customer was in, in the rental car for too long and it happened too frequently. So they just lost that, that ability as a direct repair shop. They were no longer a direct repair facility. And that represents a big loss to the body shop. Well, and, and I guess my point in saying all that is, or, or, or bringing the topic up, is as professionals, Right. You, you are. And, and we talked about liability a little bit, but as a professional, when we go to look at that automobile, we have a professional responsibility. Right. And, and I know it's easy to look at it and say, I'm just changing a one hundred dollar part. I'm just changing a thousand dollar part. I'm just telling them what's wrong with it. I have no liability. You're not the one who gets to decide if you have liability. That decision's not yours to make. It won't ever be yours to make. If if being a mobile diagnostician is the direction you want to go, that's great. But make sure you protect yourself. Yep. Very, very easy to get yourself into a spot. I get that it doesn't happen all that often. I get that it's probably not as big of a deal as I'm making it out to be. But it only takes one time. It's not until it is. That's, that's the thing. And then, yeah, then you're in a world of hurt. So that is... uh. That is some good advice for anybody out there uh, starting their own business in this field. Um, boy, we're coming up on two hours, boys. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, you know, wow. there's two really weird things about this. I don't really know that we covered any of the topics we were supposed to. And that just <laughs> seems to be what podcasts are, especially if I'm on them. But. Sean, I think this is the quietest you've ever been on a podcast. I just want you to know. <laughs> it, I, I have plenty of episodes where it's just me talking. So if someone is missing out on my voice, so just go back a couple episodes. Um, I, I have you guys on because I want to hear from you. So it's perfect. The more guests talk the easier my life is. So I enjoy it quite a bit. It's, it's a oh. little off topic. I'm not going to lie, but it's a, uh, I think it was a, an amazing discussion, and I think uh, if we can reach out to a few people who are probably in the same position that we are in or were in, then I think it was all worth it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's, these things oftentimes kind of go on a tangent, but all, the, the truth that's contained in the podcast is worth its weight in gold because you're not going to get this. Where are you going to get this from anybody else? You'll have technicians talking to techs. You'll have shop owners talking to shop owners. When are you going to get the crosstalk that exists between a guy like Tommy and a guy like Sean? If you don't, if you don't have these kind of discussions, how does the industry recognize? How do individuals in the industry recognize the problems that we face if we don't discuss it? Correct. Yep. Yeah, that's a big. That's a big one, and that's why I'm always an, I'm always an open book. I always try to help when I can. I've I, I pay it forward. When I started, I had people who would help me, would stop what they were doing uh, to guide me and help me. So I always said, I may not be able to pay you today or monetarily pay you for your time today, but I will pay it forward. And that's what I, 
what I swear by. Invest in people. Money is Amen. easy. Amen. Yes, sir. Amen. Invest in people. All hey, right, well, this old guy's got to go because, number one, I, I, I got to pay. The depends are full. <laughs> yeah, you know, at, at my age, really, it's uh, I'm fond of saying that I have a prostate the size of a, a cassava melon. So, um, you know, this stuff, I, I'm not hanging out here too much longer before I'm peeing in the trash can. <laughs> nice. Well, look, I, I just want to say one more thing before we go. If you're thinking about starting a business, if you're thinking about becoming a mobile diagnostician, a find a mentor that and, and find a good insurance agent, damn it. Uh, yeah. But buy the E myth, right? There's a book by Michael Gerber. Buy the E myth and understand from a different perspective what you're getting into before you make that decision. Right. The latest version of the of the book, or the one that that's out after the original E myth, was the E myth revisited by Michael Gerber. He has a number of books, the E myth accountant, and a, a number of other books. But that's Lucas nailed it. Um, that's a book that every tech who wants to strike out on his own or every individual who wants to strike out on their own, who has the technical background should read and understand that the business is not what you're doing. That's tough for most people to get. Like he said, although it's a difficult read, not because the lessons are, are bad in it. They're not. His writing styles is enough to make you constipated. I mean, it's just, it's a difficult, oh, Lucas is laughing, but it's true. You're not picking up this book and, and not putting it down. You're picking up, picking up this book and going, where did you learn to write? What, are you working with a crayon? What the hell are you doing? You know, I mean, it, this is, this is hey, what happened. I, I was thinking maybe we should get you to read the audible version of it. To read the audible version, read that's right. That's, that's, the, most, again. that's, that's the most Appalachian thing I heard tonight. Oh, no, 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 no. Hey, listen. I'll call you when we get done. We'll talk Appalachian. It's not Appalachian, it's Appalachian. We from down here in the yeah. uh, Read okay. the audible book. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. Well, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, okay, okay. We'll have you narrate the audible. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I just need the expletives throughout the middle of it. Okay. Fucking A, I got to tell you, this is not a problem, goddamn man. I mean, really, it's not a big fucking deal for me. Uh, there goes Dutch. <laughs> I've, I've, I've waited so long, really. I've been so good. I was, I was on a couple of Lucas podcasts, and I didn't MF anybody, really. I was going through withdrawals, and I wanted Does it to. help or does it hurt? Does it help or does it hurt? L- listen, Linda, 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 listen, listen, Linda. Okay. Yeah. Hey, um, we made it through a whole podcast without talking about David's banner. The sidewall <laughs> tire plug. We did bring up the beaver. We did bring up the beaver. But, you know. Yeah. Uh, just from now on, if any, when anybody talks to David, um, a, a term of endearment for him, one that he really appreciate is when you speak to him, just say, hey, C-19, how are you? <laughs> he, he really, he'll love that big time. <laughs> Uh, he's going to murder us (laughs) yeah (laughs) you especially but that's okay no worries just give him the audible to read he'll be all right (laughs) right hey i'll do it i will do it you watch and see All right, boys. Okay, and that is going to do it for today's episode. I want to give another big thank you to Dutch, Tommy, and Lucas for joining me on the show today. I really enjoyed that discussion. (laughs) Even though I may have been silent for some of it, I was sitting back and uh, enjoying uh, all the information that was being put out there. So I also want to give a thank you to everybody that's listening. 
But other than that, let's get out there, start fixing the world one car at a time.